Uh, I want to just jump right in without much further ado to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus. We're going to do chapter 11 today in Exodus. Uh, last week we discussed um, one, of, one of the results of the plagues, and that is um, of the plagues in general, and that is worship. That is worship. One of the results, of the overarching results of all uh, 10 of the plagues is worship. To see a mighty God, to see him perform mighty deeds, to understand that everything that you were trusting in is hopeless compared to him, it should bring us to an awe-inspiring, life-changing, lifelong sense of worship. And this week, I want to sort of bring it home uh, and see how the other plagues in the act of God um, can help us to worship better and more appropriately by restoring in us a sense of wonder in God. By restoring in us a sense of wonder uh, for God or in God. And so I've titled this today, The Plagues and Wonderment in the Lord. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 11. I want you to go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. And we're going to read Exodus chapter 11 short. There's 10 verses that we'll read today. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people." So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again." But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Father, we are so grateful to be able to witness, to be able to study, to be able to understand in a better way your majesty, your beauty, your um, awesomeness, awe-inspiring nature. And Lord, our only response is that sense of awe, that sense of wonder. Lord, would you help us to recapture, if we've lost it, to reignite, if we've lost it, our sense of wonder in you, your great name, and your great works. Lord, we love you so much. We praise you for all that you've done in our lives to cause us to wonder all that you've done in our lives, to cause us to be in awe. And we continue 
to expect and hope you to do much more. We love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. First, I would like to answer a first and probably the deepest question that you have of the day already. And that is, is wonderment a word? Yes, wonderment is a word. It means to, uh, of course, I was told if you look in Webster's, they now define words with the root word, which I was told you should never define a word with the root word. That's how I was taught. But this is from Merriam-Webster. It means to cause uh, of occasion of wonder, astonishment, or surprise. I would say that for the people of God, the Egyptians, and maybe even the modern day reader, we have lost our sense of wonderment, or maybe we've never had a sense of wonderment in the Lord. From the perspective of the plagues, this sense of wonderment is coming to a close. We've seen ten occasions, or we'll see over this week and through the Passover and different things like that over the next couple of weeks, this ten occasions for sense of wonderment, sense of awe in the Lord. Um, But from my perspective and from what I've seen, from what I've known even about myself, it seems, it appears that to a degree we've lost our sense of wonderment in the Lord. The Lord is about to bring the last plague on Pharaoh, which is the final push to let the people of Israel go. And we'll discuss this in more detail over the next few weeks with the institution of the Passover. That's what Exodus 12 is about. But what we know from this last plague is that the people of God knew what was going to happen, what was about to happen. God told them how to prepare for it. And he even equipped them for their journey. Exodus 12 outlines uh, that a little bit. And we'll discuss that, how the Lord prepared them to leave immediately uh, after the Passover. Because he knew Pharaoh was about to let them go. Now we see this some today also. The Lord told Moses that he was going to bring one more plague. And then Pharaoh would let the people go. And then what we see is not only God preparing his people for the plague, but he is also preparing them for the aftermath of the Exodus. One of the ways he did that was uh, by bringing favor upon the Israelites in the sight of the Egyptians. God's people were commanded to ask their Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver and precious possessions, and the Lord softened the heart of the Egyptians toward Moses and toward the Egyptian or toward the Israelite people. So they, they they supplied the Israelites with whatever the Lord or with whatever they requested from the Egyptians. The Lord is not only showing favor in the present for the Egyptians, but he is also showing them his favor in the future. And this may be, when we get further along in Exodus, this may be a time for a full sermon on this. It's just a side sermon right now. But we, also, we cannot, friends, this is a blessing from the Lord. The, the, the Israelites go to the Egyptians, they say, hey, give us your gold. Give us your silver. This is a blessing from the Lord because what do they do? They hand it over. But what do we find out later that that gold and silver is used for? This is a side sermon. So I'm not going to get into it too long. But later, they, make, they use the blessings of God to make a golden calf to worship another image. To worship a graven image. We see that the blessings of God can be 
can be taken in a way that if we, especially when he gives us abundance, to where we use the blessings of God in an inappropriate manner. But also, friends, they redeem themselves. Because what else is that gold and silver used for later? It's used to make the Ark of the Covenant. It's used to make the temple. It's used to make the things to worship the Lord. And so we see how the blessings of God can be perverted and polluted, and we see how the blessings of God can be used to further His glory. We also see mightily, not only in the other nine plagues, but in this, other pl- this plague especially, the sovereignty of God. Friends, listen. The, when does the looting typically happen in war? When does the looting typically happen? It happens after the victory, Right? It happens after the victory. Here's what the Lord says. The Lord says, look, I want you to go ahead and pre-loot Egypt, Egypt, okay? I want you to pre-loot them. And as a matter of fact, without even holding a sword, they are going to to give you, they are going to give you of their richest possessions. This is the sovereignty of God at work. This is the mighty hand of the Lord at work. Side sermon over. But it'll, see, it'll sort of be running through there, so don't just forget about it. So he was supplying with them with their needs before they even had them. Then Moses lays out what the Lord's plan is going to be. He says, at midnight, now for the Jewish people this wasn't 12 a.m., but this was literally the darkest time. So the darkest point of the night, the Lord would go himself out amongst his people. Again, the sovereignty of God. This is God himself. This is God himself going out amongst the people. At the darkest time, the Lord himself will go out amongst the people. And so far, all of the warnings and persuasions on Pharaoh had not worked. To this point, there may have even been doubt amongst the people of God. Like, okay, the Lord's doing these neat parlor trick sort of things. You know, he's bringing plagues amongst the people, but where has that gotten us? He's protected us during this difficult time, but where has that gotten us? Is Pharaoh ever going to soften his heart? The answer is no. The answer is he's going to bend to the will of the Lord. So Pharaoh's never going to soften his heart. He's going to bend to the will of the Lord because the will of the Lord is stronger than even any hard heart. So maybe even the people of God were doubting that The Lord was going to rescue him. But when persuasion and seeing the mighty hand of God does not work, the Lord comes down himself as a final means of saving his people. There's another sermon. I won't go into it today, though. The Lord himself comes down as a means of saving his people. And he goes throughout the land and he strikes down all of the firstborn from Pharaoh to the slave girl to the cattle. To which the Bible says that there was a well of lament in Egypt, greater than it happened to that point and greater than will ever be. Now this may be a side note for you, and you may think I'm uh, daft or foolish for not uh, getting this before. But to this point in studying this, even up until this point of preparing the sermon, I had only seen the firstborn as children. Maybe, you, maybe you've also seen it that way. Don't, for, I, when I think of it, I think of... Pharaoh lost his teenage son, or he lost his 12-year-old. And all these people, they lost their baby, they lost their child. Friends, let me tell you, that's not what it was. It was men throughout, men and grandparents 
and teenagers and boys and babies all throughout Egypt and cattle, sheep. Not a firstborn child was left alive. The Bible says later that there wasn't a house that did not have a dead person in it. Not a house of Egypt that uh, was not affected. We see here the power of God on a scale that is hard, difficult, or maybe has not been duplicated since. We discussed this some last week and how the wonderment of God causes us to worship. I want to expand on that today. When we think about the stretch of just this last plague, I want us to think about the awe-inspiring power of God and the wonderment of God. This type of power and sovereignty, friends, should cause us to sit, stand, or bow in awe of His works. It should cause us to sit, stand, or bow in wonderment. We discussed how God was decreating creation right from underneath Pharaoh. And on the last day of creating things, what did God create? The last day of creating things, He created man. He created mankind. And on the last plague, what did He do? He took mankind away. He took the firstborn away. Friends, he is the God over life, and he is the God over death. There's all sorts of different theological implications that we can study in that. There's all sorts of theological implications that we can um, uh, find from that, but I don't think we have time to discuss them all. But he is the God over life. He is the God over death. He is sovereign over creation. He is sovereign over decreation, if you want to term it that. No matter how you feel about these stories, though, friends, no matter what kind of sense it gives you, maybe you feel like God is picking on the Egyptians or that he's too harsh, that he is acting as an overlord and more than a loving God, you can't look at this story, no matter how you feel, and at least be in amazement of what the Lord has done. You can't look at this story, no matter how you feel, and at least not be in awe of what the Lord has done. Friends, I hope that today, before today is over, you look at what the Lord has done with a sense of gratitude, with a sense of awe-inspiring gratitude. If that is not where you are today, if that's not where you stand today on stories like this, I hope that by the end of the day that it is. What a God of wonders. Our awe and wonderment, friends, causes us to look at God, causes us to look at the Lord. It causes us to experience worship differently. It causes us to look at the things of this life differently. This week, I want us to look at three ways our wonderment affects the way we view God. Three ways our wonderment affects the way we view God. Friends, I want you to know Last week I talked about worship, and I may have should have, it's just the way it worked out. Maybe we should have talked about how we can worship better, how we can understand worship better before, but understand that we talked about worship last week, and this week we're going to talk about how we can worship better. And I'm here to tell you, and this is absolutely true, you cannot worship properly with a misunderstanding uh, of who God is. 
You cannot worship properly with a misrepresentation of who God is. And so when we try to take away the truth of God, and we talked about this a little bit last week, when we try to take away the truth of God, when we try to talk, take away the fact that God is both loving and God is just, that God sends people to hell and God sends people to glory, when we try to take away the truth of God, we take away our sense of wonder in the Lord. We take away our sense of what is right, what is just, and what is good. And we can't worship properly when we take away our sense of wonder in the Lord. And so the first thing I want you to see from this and sort of an overarching theme from the plagues is this. Our life of wonderment causes us to marvel at His majesty. Our life of wonderment causes us to marvel at His majesty. For me, the terms majesty and sovereignty can, use, can be used interchangeably. So if you hear me say majesty, what I'm saying is sovereignty. If you hear me say sovereignty, what I'm saying is majesty. And what we see in our text today and throughout the plagues is a sense of majesty, a sense of wonderment uh, for God and His sovereign rule. Just in our text today, we see the majesty of God as He sovereignly reigns over our future. He sovereignly reigns over the future of the Israelite people and thus subsequently over our future. He speaks to Moses in absolutes. Moses writes this as if God is speaking in absolutes about the future and not with timidity. The Lord says to Moses, I will bring one more plague. I will let you go. Or you, he will let you go. He is sovereign over his enemies. He shows majesty over his enemies. I will go out amongst the people at the darkest hour and every firstborn shall, shall is a definitive term, shall die. He is sovereign over his enemies. He is sovereign over the future. I will go out amongst the people at the darkest hour and every firstborn shall die. Just like every other plague, the Lord is taking quick and definitive action on Pharaoh and Pharaoh's people for their disobedience. Through this and many other things, we see the majesty and sovereignty of the Lord. Not only does the Lord have a will to do something, He has a will and a purpose and a plan to do something, but He has the ability and He has the endurance to follow through with His plans. Friends, I want to tell you, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but His majesty should cause us to have a sense of wonder in the Lord. It should cause us to be in awe of the God we serve, in awe of the God that we serve, or in awe of the God that we have yet to surrender to. But often we see that we are not that way. Often we see that we have either lost or never gained a sense of reverence, a sense of majesty in the Lord. At a minimum, friends, I want to ask you this question. Do we have the same reverence as the Egyptian wise council that had enough reverence for the Lord that they told Pharaoh, hey, <clears throat> let these people go so that we can be rid of them. Do we have that sense of majesty that Moses experienced before the wise council, before plagues 8 and 9? Does our wonderment for the works of the Lord impact our lives on a daily basis? He is sovereign over the future. He is sovereign over our enemies. He's sovereign over his people. 
in providing them with their needs for the Exodus journey. Just a small example is one we've already pointed to of how he preluded the Egyptian people. He preluded, excuse me, preluded the Egyptian people. He took the precious things. Friends, if we become numb to the wonderment of God, have we become dull or hardened like Pharaoh? I think there are many causes to our numbness towards the majesty of God. So I want to just sit there and, and, and I want to talk about this just for a little bit. And I want to say objectively, I believe as a society, as a Christian society, as a society in general, that we have dulled our senses to the Spirit of God. That's sort of A, and B will sort of be our solution. We have dulled our senses to the Spirit of God. Now, friends, I want you to understand this, that throughout time, each generation has thought the prior generation, that a prior generation to them was better than them. Okay, right? My father thinks there's a generation prior to him that's better than them. Him. I think there's a generation prior to me that's better than me. And each generation has also thought that a generation after them is worse than them. Okay, so if, if you millennials get a little hurt because, you know, people bag on you a little bit. Notice I said you millennials. You get a little hurt because people bag on you a little bit. Don't, don't feel too bad because each generation has always thought there was a generation prior to them that was better than them. And each generation has always thought that there was a generation after them that is worse than them. And a testimony to you today, I fall in that category also. I think there are generations before my generation that are better, and there are generations after mine that are worse. And I'm sure in some senses it's true, in some senses it's not true. But I will tell you something. I will tell you something. I have faith that the Lord is renewing His people, and that He is still saving. And that faith, friends, in the Lord is stronger than any lack of faith I have in future generations. As a matter of fact, I think the Lord is raising up millennials and the generation after them to do great and mighty things for Him. Just like every generation before and everyone after, God will raise up pastors and missionaries and men and women of God who sit in the pew, who stand in the pulpit and walk the streets to the glory of the Lord. I'm not worried about this generation or the next generation because I trust the Lord. I trust His sovereignty. I trust His power. And I believe that He is a God who makes all things new. And He is restoring things to Himself. But friends, I am worried from this perspective about my generation, the generation a little bit before mine, and specifically future generations. I am worried. Because there has never been a time where there is more entertainment and more things to numb our senses that are right at our fingertips. There has never been a time where we are more available to our work. <clears throat> where one time we could leave our job at the office, we are now leashed to our work 24-7 through emails, through social media, through other apps, productivity apps and things like that that keep us leashed to our work. There is never a time before the world was so developed, or excuse me, there was a time before the world was so developed that a mother and father could work hard in a day and not exclude themselves from their family because work revolved around the family. 
It wasn't separated from the family. It, it revolved around the family. We have a numbness. We have numbed our senses and it makes our current generation seem more godless seem more disinterested in God. But friends, we aren't becoming a more godless society because people are becoming more evil. Because the truth is, depravity has not changed. We have been equally depraved all throughout history. Depravity has not changed. We are not becoming more godless because we're becoming more evil people. We're becoming more godless because people are becoming more numb with distractions. We're becoming more numb to the awe and the wonder of a God that causes us to think about Him, to desire Him, to long for Him, and honestly, this is the most important, to respond to Him. People don't have to think about God anymore because they can fill their minds with countless other distractions to the point where they don't even struggle in their mindset with whether or not there is a God. Or Christians don't have to put too much time thinking about lost souls because they can fill their minds with so much other things that we don't have to think about the eternal destination of our friends and family members. It's true that people have been dulling their senses for countless years. Humans have always, since the garden, since the fall of man, humans have looked for a way to distract their mind from having to think about their own mortality. Since the garden, humans have looked for ways to take their mind off of God. If it wasn't a cell phone, it would be a a newspaper or a book. If it wasn't a newspaper or a book, it would be some sort of leisure activity. We have always been looking for ways to distract our minds from God. Because if we have to think about God, then we have to deal with our sinfulness. We have to deal with our neediness. We have to deal with our mortality. (coughs) And we have to deal with the mortality of others. People have been dulling their senses for countless years. I mean, opioids have been around for countless years. Poppy fields have been, people have been smoking opioids, poppies, so dulling their senses, getting out of this world for countless years. Alcohol has been around on some level for countless years. Leisure activities have been around on some level for countless years. Dulling the senses, ultimately, not so people can get out of this world so that they don't have to think about God. They don't have to think about their future. They don't have to think about their neediness. As we progress, friends, the reason I worry is because we are, we are becoming more and more involved with things that are emotionally trivial, that are spiritually trivial, that are eternally trivial. We have VR headsets that can take our mind completely away from reality momentarily. And if you don't think the VR headsets eventually are going to be more of a permanent, like, day-long type thing, If you don't think that that's going to happen, you're crazy. We have video games and apps. We have romantic movies and superheroes. Friends, there are women in this audience and even men at times that get lost in TV romance so much comparing their lack of romance or comparing the romance in their relationship to the TV or the movie romance. Giving an improper, improper perspective, an improper reality that does not exist. We have people who are more in awe of a Marvel character 
or a fictional character with fictional powers than the God of the universe. With a little work, we can slip off into another world and not have to think about certain realities. The more often we think about distracting things, the less we think about the reality at hand. We are numb to the awe and wonderment of God. If anything social justice warriors have done, it's bring light to certain things, which I think is an important aspect of seeking justice. You bring light to injustice. Uh, again, you, you know my stance on that. I just think they're doing it in an improper way. Bringing light on injustice is one way to seek justice. But it has been proven difficult to keep the passion for those things unless they are right in front of their face. And we have so many distractions that the things uh, uh, that were once kept our attention for a moment, we don't keep, it doesn't keep our attention anymore. Do you remember Bring Back Our Girls? Or do you remember Coney 2012? Some of you could probably tell me generally what those things were about. But those things were just four to six years ago, and most of you probably couldn't go in depth with what those things were about. It isn't just a social justice warrior who has a difficult time keeping people interested or involved. We've also found this in the Christian world. We live in a society, and we act like people of our society who need our senses tingled every five minutes. Or we can't be happy. We can't be content. We need to be slapped in the face with happiness. And what we have done, we have, because we need it every five minutes, because we need it immediately, we need it quickly, is we have made happiness affordable and easy to access and therefore making it cheap and fleeting. You play a game on your phone for a few weeks or a few months and then you start a new one. And all those things that you uh, compiled and the, you know, the things that you were uh, earning in that, in that game you thought at the time was so important, at the end of it you're like, okay, well that next one. At the end you find that the game was only a means of temporary distraction from eternal things. Finances are just the same thing except it's a longer game. It's still the same. We earn money to make us happy for the future. And when we get to the future, we realize what it cost us in the past. It costs us the joy of the moment. The vast majority of us have become drug addicts, but our drugs are more socially acceptable and therefore deemed okay. We fill our lives with YouTube videos and Twitter debates and social causes, which all of these things in and of themselves are, are not detrimental to your faith, but we are involved in them in such a way that we numb our reality to the things that we should be focusing on and giving perspective to. The reality that God is mighty and powerful and is still working in us. That people are either living by faith or they are dying under wrath. That we are just wasting our lives away on trivial things. But we can change. We can change. It doesn't have to be that way. We can regain our sense of wonderment or our search for wonderment. We can regain that. And that's the second little point under there. We have lost, we have become numb to our sense of wonderment, but we can regain our search for wonderment. We must reinstate that search in our lives. We must place that above all else. Easier said than done, right? 
How do we do that? How do we do that? I think there's one simple way and then some that are a little bit more difficult. First, we pray that God would restore our sense of wonder in Him. That He would restore our sense of awe. We pray for that like we pray for nothing else. We pray that we would be in awe and in wonder of God. People are always searching for some sort of worship, some sort of act that makes them feel more whole, and they never start with who God is and what He's done. Not never, but they rarely, or it's unlikely that they started who God is or what He's done. Pray that God would restore a sense of wonderment. Here's one that's very important. Eagerly anticipate good from God. Eagerly anticipate good from God. For example, I want to give you, it's, it's the only one I could really find uh, in the immediate. I didn't want to spend too much time uh, thinking about it, but this is a good one. Every time my sister goes out of town, now this might be the wrong way for my kids to believe, but every time my sister goes out of town, my kids are just head over heels ready for her to come back into town. They love her. That's one of the reasons why. But why do you think? Because she brings them something. My kids want her to be home. They know that something exciting is behind that because they expect good when she comes home. They expect good from her. Friends, listen, we need to have a real sense of who God is, but that real sense of who God is should not cause us to quit expecting good from Him. We have a sense of wonder, and He fulfills that sense of wonder when we expect good from Him. So we eagerly anticipate good from God. We search for His presence daily, but especially when things aren't good. We search for His presence daily. Friends, one of the ways we uh, reinstate or regain wonder in God is attributing things to God. Attributing things to God. We were at the A-Fair yesterday, and it was hot as Hades. And I said, get thee behind me, Satan, with your heat. But then a, but then a wind came, and I said, thank you, Lord. A breeze came, and I said, thank you, Lord. One of the things about my father-in-law that I love, and there are several, one of the things about him that I love is we would, I would be working with him on a project or something like that, and things would be awful. And it would, it would not be going the way we would want it to go. And we would have a breakthrough, and something would happen, and, and, and we would get the accomplished results. And the first thing he would say is, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How often in our day when we're met with frustrations, when we're met with times of trouble, in our daily lives, when we have a breakthrough or when we have a sense of, of relief, do we say, praise the Lord, thank you, Lord. We have lost our sense of wonderment because we have attributed the menial things in life to something else other than God. When we have a God who cares about the small things. We have attributed the small and the sort of menial things of life to something else, to human power, to luck, to chance, to whatever it may be when we have a God who cares about the small things and is working in them, to which we should say with our lives in everything that we do, praise the Lord. 
We should pray eagerly that God would reestablish our wonderment. We should eagerly anticipate good from the Lord. We should search for His presence daily. One of the things that's good for me, friends, is we should take a look at creation. We should take a look at the galaxies. We should read a science book. We should watch planet Earth. Friends, if you look at planet Earth and you don't say, how can someone not believe in a creator? There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong. I look at, the, I look at planet Earth. When I'm saying is not the planet. You know what I'm saying, right? The special that came on the Discovery Channel. I look at planet Earth. I look at that video and I see, I see, um, I see seals. Um, sir, uh, they're, they're, I, I watched one uh, on vacation and these seals were going for minnows. They were going for a school of minnows and the minnows were attracting the birds and, the, and they were attracting all these animals to the surface and the whales were coming and capturing the seals and all of this happened is supposed to have happened by chance that the, the schools of minnows just, just naturally by some sort of uh, big bang sort of ideology they just sort of learn to swim to the top to be bait for the seals to be bait for the birds that the whales would come and be fed too that just kind of naturally happens just naturally happens. Or the fact that naturally, if, if a giraffe went to take its first drink, if it just evolved like it was, if a giraffe went to take its first drink, the, ru- the blood would rush down the long neck of the giraffe and explode its brain. That just naturally happens. No, it doesn't. Because the giraffe has a soft sponge at the, head, at the base of its brain. So when blood goes down, it hits that sponge and slowly goes into its brain instead of exploding it with the force of the blood. I look at creation and I say, man, that is a God of wonders. That is a God of wonders. What about the beetle who shoots out, and I can't think of the bombardier beetle, it shoots out ignition out of its butt. Okay, this is a true story. It shoots out two explosive chemicals that are like jet fuel. They're stored in two tanks in its bottom. And it shoots it out. And a millisecond after it comes out of its bottom, it because uh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying but because my father's in the audience. A millisecond after it comes out of its bottom, it ignites it so that it can cast itself off to be thrown away from its enemy, to be flown away from its enemy. But if they were to meet together inside the beetle, it would explode it. I'm in awe of the fact that that could not have just evolved over time because the first one that went, it would have exploded. Okay? The first one that went, you know, it would have exploded. That, that, that things like that don't evolve. So we look at planet Earth, we look at creation, we look at the galaxies, and we say, how could anyone believe this is an accident? And we have a sense of wonder in the Lord. We just remind ourselves, friends, Here's another thing. We just generally remind ourselves that everything that we have comes from God. Salvation, abundant life, friendship, just a general gratitude that everything we have comes from God. I look at my children, I look at my wife, and I'm in awe and I'm in wonder because I think there's, <laughs> there has to be a God. Because he would not have blessed, I would not have been this blessed. There has to be somebody else organizing and designing this for me. And I look at the love that they have for me and my wife and my family, and I just, I'm in awe of the wonder of the Lord. Friends, we have dulled our senses to the wonder of God. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. We can begin to chip away at the things that dull our senses. I'm not saying a complete abstinence from anything that you think is fun. 
but we can begin to chip away, we can begin to chip away from the things that dull our senses to the Lord and turn our minds to God. Friends, you know what you need the most in your life? You think you need a lot of different things. You know what you need the most in your life? You need silence. You need to unplug. You need to turn off. You need silence. You know when my wife and I, when we draw closer together, when both of our phones are down and the TV's off and we're forced, forced, it's a, it's a force now. I'm, I'm saying it that way on purpose. It's forced now. Because we have to force ourselves to put the dang phones down. We have to force ourselves to turn the TV off. We have to force ourselves to have another prerogative other than just getting to know each other. More than anything, we need to just sit with ourselves for a minute and put into perspective the things of God. You will not regain a sense of wonderment in the Lord if you continue to numb your senses with things that cause you to be distracted. Again, I'm not saying a complete abstinence from these type things. I am saying that we shouldn't engorge ourselves with them, though. We have a wonderment at His majesty. I'm going to run through these very quickly. I intended to spend the most time on that one, and I'm going to run through these very quickly. Our life of wonderment causes us to trust in His salvation. That's the second thing. Our life of wonderment causes us to trust in His salvation. The Israelites give us a great testimony of the trust in the Lord for their salvation, for, for whether it was um, by their own Uh, volition or not. They give us an example of trust in the Lord. They were completely out of control. There There is not a time that goes by when I think my salvation, friends, is my own and that I'm not in awe or in wonder of what the Lord has done. The only question I ask when, the only question I can typically ask when looking at my salvation and how I've come from where I was to where I am and where he's going to make me is why. Why, Lord, did you look at me? Why did you choose a lazy, a self-centered, a not very friendly, and some other characteristics that are bad about me that I'm sure you could name better than I could? Why would you choose me? And then why would you use me? Why, Lord? Above all that, why would you call me out of darkness and into marvelous light, into glory, into your family? Now, regardless of what people think about Christians, regardless of how the world stigmatizes us, if that's a proper use of that word, I am generally proud of our Christian family. I am generally proud of those people that I know who are following Jesus in spirit and in truth. And regardless of what Christians think, regardless of what the world thinks about Christians, you should be also, it is a blessing and it causes a sense of wonderment for me to be called into that family. And it should for you to know that salvation is a work of the Lord, that we can trust in Him, that we who were sinners, that we were far off, we were depraved, We were enemies of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were made alive together in Christ Jesus. We have been given life through his powerful death, burial, and resurrection. But even so, his powerful calling on our lives. That he has 
called us from darkness and into marvelous light. That we know that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation and the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We should not just have wonderment over the fact that we are saved, but how it has been done. Salvation has been done perfectly and exactly how the Lord would have it. And it's done, it was done that way as an example. It was done that way in Exodus. Look at Exodus 11 again. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. The Lord's people will be let go in God's perfect timing as a culmination of his perfect plan and and in only the way he could do it. And friends, that is not just a picture, that is not just how he saved the Israelites, but it's a picture of how he saves us. In his perfect timing, as a culmination of his perfect plan, and in only a way that he could do it. Moses says in Exodus that they would go freely, and not even a dog would growl or bark. And I think there's two meanings to this, and I want to point them out just really quickly. There's two little meanings, and one is this. He meant that Possibly, the Egyptian taskmasters may have had a dog or dogs that were used to keep people in line. That may be a thing. Or it may be that there were many wild dogs running around and not even the dog would even give a second look to those people, this mass exodus, this million people living Egypt, uh, leaving Egypt. But I think there's a little thing that's a little bit more fun. And it, it could be all of these. But I think there's one that's a little more fun. There was a God, and we talked about him last week, and his name was Anubis. He was the God of mummification and the afterlife. And Anubis had a human body, and he had a dog face. His head was the head of a dog, and he had a human body. And so as an additional slap into the face of Pharaoh, an additional slap into the face of the gods of the Egyptians, even Anubis would not be allowed to growl at the Israelites The God of mummification, the God of the afterlife, would have no control over the lives of the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. Have you lost wonderment in your salvation? Have you lost that idea, that memory of who you were before God? Most of us literally have forgotten. Like we can't even remember Many, if any, details, or we block them out of our minds, what we were like. We tend to have rose-colored glasses, or we tend to think of things a little differently than they were. We tend to think of things in our first moments of sal- after salvation, our first years of life of a, as a Christian. We tend to think of those as a little bit better than they were. We tend to lose... The person, that the more and more we go and grow in Christ, we tend to lose the person that we were. And that's good. You shouldn't sit here and dwell on the bad. But, dwelling, or, but remembering the bad gives us a perspective of all that God has done. Have you lost the wonderment of all that he has done in salvation? 
I think there's a few things you can do, and I don't know if these are practical steps or things you're already doing or things you're not doing, but you should consider them. The first is to pray God would bring you humility. humility. The first step to gaining wonderment in the salvation of God is to believe that you had nothing to do with it, to believe that he's in charge, to believe that even your sanctification is a work of him. So pray that God would bring you humility. Pray that God would tear down your idols, whatever idol it is that makes you think that you are in the pantheon of God's. Pray that God would help you tear down your idol. Pray that God would throw out distractions that have prevented you from being enthralled by his salvation. We have wonderment in his majesty or in his sovereignty, wonderment in his salvation. And our life of wonderment causes us to live for his glory. Friends, I'm not going to go through that full point, but I want us to remember, just as a point of pointing it out. And at some point else, we'll, we'll, some other point in time, we'll discuss the glory of Lord, because you know that that's been a subject we've gone over several times. Several times. So we'll go over that again, probably in Exodus a few times. But as our, uh, we need to regain a sense of wonderment in the glory of the Lord. Friends, everything that we do, wonder in his sovereignty, wonder and trust in his salvation, everything that we do is for his glory and his honor and his purposes. Have we lost the sense of wonderment in the glory of the Lord? Where we look at this and we say, is this action going to glorify God? Or is this action going to dishonor his name? Is this more so, if you're young, my age or younger, more so is this in action going to glorify the Lord? Or is it going to bring dishonor to his name? Friends, we can distract ourselves all we want. And we can stop asking ourselves the difficult questions. But I can tell you, losing your sense of wonderment is the first thing that's going to cause you to lose your sense of worship. Losing your sense of wonderment and worship is going to cause you to lose your sense or your desire to grow. And it's going to cause you to be either a stagnant Christian or a non-existent Christian. We need, for the sake of the church, for the sake of sanctification, for the sake of being more like Jesus, we need to recapture our sense of wonderment in the Lord, which will cause us to worship more freely, more truly, in a more involved manner, in a more corporate manner, and it'll cause us to love God more than anything, love others like we love ourselves. And therefore glorify God by keeping his commands. I love you. I'm so thankful for you. Would you pray with me today? God, you are good. You are holy. You are right. You are true. And you are awesome. And Lord, we have a sense of wonder because of who you are. Lord, would you help us to never lose our sense of wonder in you? Would you help us to never lose our sense of all. And if we do, Lord, would you help us to pray for it and to seek it and never stop until we get it. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. He gives us the ultimate reason to have wonderment in the Lord. The Son of God 
sent to earth, humbled himself, became a man, lived 30-something years, had a three-year ministry, performed miracles, died on the cross, was fully dead and buried, rose again by his own power after three days, is now with the Father who lives and reigns now in us forever and ever. Lord, help us never lose our sense of wonderment in Christ. We praise you and we love you. We know that all of these things are possible through the power of the Holy Spirit of God who works in us, who lives in us, who changes us daily. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.